with BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Minister, thanks again for coming on. Hey, good morning, Mike. Appreciate it a lot. Uh, yesterday, uh, more kind of encouraging news with the modeling data that you released on the, on the pandemic. Uh, health or, or uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry said this could be the beginning of the the end of the beginning of the pandemic, as she put it there. I think channeling Churchill. Where, where do you? What should we take away from these numbers at this point? Are, are we at the spot where we should be? Are we ahead of? Are we ahead of schedule in your estimation? Where are we at? Well, we have our own pandemic in BC, but uh, people in BC, I think, have done an exceptional job in following uh, the directions of the provincial health authority uh, officer, and I think that that's made a, a big difference. We see, you know, we went from a high of 149 cases yesterday. There were 77 currently in hospital. We went from uh, 72 people in critical care to 20 people yesterday. There have been, of course, 117 uh, people who have passed away in BC. So relative to other jurisdictions, we've done well, and the curve has flattened, as we talked about. We also learned yesterday about who's been most affected. It's obviously, and this is something we've understood from the beginning, but there were very, very clear evidence yesterday that this affects older people people with chronic conditions, and of course, men more than women uh, deal with more serious side effects of COVID-19, and that we don't know entirely why that's the case, but we do know that is the case. And so that tells us a little bit about who's been affected by COVID-19. So the results yesterday are have been good for the province, but they also showed, and the modeling also showed, that if we were to return to what we were doing in December, that we would see a very significant spike again in cases in COVID-19. So the new normal has to be more activity than we're doing now, but um, within uh, very effective controls. Okay, speaking of that and the new normal and the physical distancing that we've all become accustomed to, uh, there's a lot of people getting kind of tired of it. They're looking for some hope that we'll get back to some new normal or uh, get back to a, a degree of normality for our lives. You mentioned yesterday that the physical distancing can be can be our friend. It's it's frustrating for a lot of people, but you also call it our friend if we can use it and keep employing it to get the economy opened up again, right? Can you expand a bit on that, how that would work? Yeah, I think we see it um, often in, uh, in uh, grocery stores, but we need to apply physical distancing to all walks of life. And that means that we can do a whole bunch of things that we haven't been doing for the last month or so, but we have to be, in some ways, more conscious of it. Over the last couple of months, a lot of us have been using physical distancing by staying home or staying away from people. We're now going to have to be out doing more things, and therefore the physical distancing rules that we've applied are more important. They keep us safe. And so they allow us to open the economy more, allow us to do more things by restricting, for example, the number of people in stores. We've seen this in grocery stores. By having plexiglass um, uh, shields uh, between us and, say, cashiers and others in retail environments and in other environments, it helps keep us safe by, uh, by ensuring, of course, that people don't go to work or go to school or go shopping sick. Those are all yeah. key ways that we, uh, we reduce transmission while we try and open up... Uh, more activity, which is necessary in our economy. Right. Speaking of the economy, there's been a lot of sectors of the economy and sort of disproportionately hurt during this crisis. And we talked on yesterday's show about the barber shops and salons that are shut down, and they're looking for some hope and indication that they'll be allowed to reopen again. And 
Minister, I'll just play you this uh, short clip here for a caller we had yesterday on the show. His name is Edwin. He runs a, a salon in Nanaimo. And here he is talking about looking for some direction from government. I own a salon in Nanaimo. We have uh, 15 employees, so we're a pretty large operation. Um, we do have lots of space. So, you know, I, I guess my question and my concern is I just would like to know, you know, what the rules are going to be get some sort of roadmap going so that when we're told we can open, we all have, you know, the masks and all the equipment that we would need to have on hand. Cause obviously I hear of shortages of a lot of stuff. So we want to be prepared and be able to keep our staff and our clients safe. So an outline would be really good. Minister, what would you say to him? He's wondering about his business and what he should be doing right now to prepare to get opened again. Well, I think um, all businesses have to start thinking about how they put physical distancing in their businesses, how they put in administrative controls. And in businesses where um, some physical distancing may be impossible, you can't yeah. cut someone's hair without being beside them, right? You can't right. do it. Uh, you can't do it. There, we have to look at the use of things such as PPE. So sector by sector, we have to go through working with businesses to see how we can do it safe. The business that Edwin is in, is under a specific provincial health order. Like most right. businesses in BC haven't been ordered uh, not to operate, but they, in those areas, uh, restaurants have been affected by that. They can only do takeout and bars and so on. Those businesses, uh, we're going to have to put in effectively checklists that everyone has to put in place. And, there, and that's what we're going to start to have been developing and are going to start to develop over the next couple of weeks as we try and open up those sectors of the economy. But it's going to be challenging, you know, and there's two reasons why it's important. Uh, one, the provincial health officer, so is effort, so we've got to ensure that we don't have transmission. But two, all of those businesses are going to have to show to a public that's going to be reluctant to go in, right? right? right. That they're able to serve them safely as well. So it's a combined effort. It's not just a question of, of, um, of the government putting in rules that stop business from operating. It's just working together to find a new normal where people can go to the barber shop, go to the hair salon. Uh, go to the restaurant and feel that they can be safe. And that's a challenge. Speaking to BC Health Minister Adrian Dix, a big day tomorrow with an announcement from the Premier on a plan going forward. And I, I believe you'll be participating in, in that as well. And what can people anticipate tomorrow? I know you can't give away everything today, but what do you hope people will be able to take away from it tomorrow? Look, it's going to be different than other provinces. All of the things that, for example, Premier Ford of Ontario, Premier Legault announced they were opening, with the exception, I think, of schools in Quebec, were already not closed in BC. Right? So they talked about yeah. opening garden centres. Well, garden centres have stayed uh, open in BC uh, or have been allowed to stay open in BC with the appropriate um, physical distancing. Grocery stores the same, but also construction and natural resources and other industries have continued to function. The challenge for all those industries is markets. It's not uh, provincial health rules, which they've been, which have been established for those industries. So what you're going to see tomorrow is a focus on some areas of endeavors, such as, such as Edwin, Edwin's, which uh, have been affected by provincial health orders. And, um, and sort of a guide to what the new normal will be, because we have to get back uh, to some economic activity and some social activity, uh, Mike. Uh, uh, we're human beings. We're social beings. We have to find ways for kids to play that are safe. But we got to find ways for kids to play this summer. We can't have a summer where people are are uh, feeling they can't do that. What could be so safe? In, what kind of activities right. could be safe? Exactly. And so that. Well, that what's, means, what's your answer to so, that? 
think think of a sport like uh, little league baseball. I think yeah. working together with the people involved in baseball, that's a sport that lends itself to social distancing more so than say uh, I don't know rugby, for example, right? <laughs> which is yeah. uh, which would be more challenging. But I think we got to find ways for camps to happen and work with those as businesses to make sure they're rules and safe, so parents can feel that they can send their children, right? Which is really important. Which every every business uh, profit or nonprofit will have to to deal with on the one hand and on the other hand keeps us safe from the transmission of the virus and i think that's possible and that's what we're going for with that's what the if you look at the report that uh, dr henry and i presented yesterday that's what those that hierarchy of controls is about allowing us to go forward so when i say physical distancing is your friend it's our friend because it will allow us to do things that we haven't been doing for the last month uh while staying safe what about the National Hockey League potentially reopening? And there was a lot of speculation yesterday that maybe Vancouver could be one of these hub cities that we've heard about where maybe the transmission rate has been flattened sufficiently. Maybe you could have NHL games played in Vancouver, no fans in the stands, the games broadcast on TV. Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday gave some encouraging signals that maybe that's possible. What are your thoughts on it? Uh, I think it's possible again. Um, we're going to have to work through business by business. Just like Edwin uh, with his um, uh, hair salon in Nanaimo, the Vancouver yeah. Connects are going to have to meet the same conditions and other and other uh, other business organizations. But it may be possible, of course. Many cameras operate by robot these days. And uh, it's more possible for a league such as the NHL. Um, and possibly this is true of the CFL. It certainly is true of the National Football League or the NBA these leagues have the possibility of operating uh, before empty stadiums, right? Because they get a, such a huge portion of their revenue from, from TV. Uh, right. Where it's going to be more challenging, and, and we just have to work through this, is going to be for all walks of life, like, say, the Western Lacrosse Association, or the Western Hockey League, those, um, those leagues and those activities where the primary source of revenue is gate revenue. They do have media revenue in those cases, but, but most of those things, just like many live performers, depend on people being in the, in the stadium, and that's going to be much more challenging. Last question for you. The Prime Minister this morning announced a, a big aid package for, to help farmers and food processors, and it includes $77 million to keep uh, workers safe in like meat packing plants where we've seen outbreaks, including in, in our own province. Do you think that? Do you agree with that? Like, how come these companies can't keep their own workers safe? Why does it take uh, the federal government to step in here with seventy-seven million dollars to keep workers safe? Well, I think the food supply is important. You know, we have one um, one operation in Alberta that has, I think, nine hundred seventy-five cases. Right. Yeah. And so I, I think it may be that some things are required, and we've certainly been working with uh, the industry here to make sure we're safe because we need. We need that food production, right? We absolutely do. It's an, it's an essential service. Can you imagine if there had been uh, food shortages in this period, how we all would have felt? I think there was a lot of angst for a time about toilet paper, uh, Mike, but this would have been a very serious situation. So food is an essential service. And so I think it's reasonable that the federal government get involved and and support food production in the, in the country at a time when we're clearly going to need it and where the importation of some food um, may be less readily available to us. So we've got to become uh, more self-sufficient. I think that's what all that's part of. But look, there are rules in place now, and we have to ensure that workplaces that are operating um, are ensuring that their workers are safe now. 
and uh, and that's what we're attempting to do. And, and I think uh, what's happened in Alberta, but what's also happened in American jurisdictions and here in BC, um, is uh, obviously a real concern to us. Uh, in many uh, food uh, uh, plants, uh, chicken plants in BC or beef plants in Alberta, uh, the physical distancing is more challenging. So we've okay. got to do work to keep everybody safer. So I think it's okay. That I think it's good that the federal government's involved, but we also need the federal government to uh, apply the existing rules um, uh, in, uh, right. in federally regulated endeavors. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the Metro Vancouver real estate market now. The month of April, very slow for home sales. Prices, though, not falling dramatically at the same time. But will this pandemic impact this market? Have a listen to this. This is Natalie Obika, Obiko Pearson. She is a reporter with Bloomberg News talking about Vancouver real estate here. So if you remember back in 2015, the chairman of BlackRock described Vancouver condos as a better store of wealth than gold. So we're really seeing the coronavirus putting that theory to the test today. And, you know, the outlook for Canada is more precarious than most. Okay, BlackRock, the BlackRock chairman there is a guy named Lawrence Fink. And he's one of the biggest asset managers in the world. And you might remember that quote from five years ago where he said, yeah, forget about buying bars of gold. Buy Vancouver condos instead. That's the best store of wealth. Is that going to hold up through this pandemic? Let's check in with Steve Soretsky now. He's a real estate analyst with VanCityCondoGuide.com. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Steve. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it a lot. Let's talk about this market first of all. What was the month of April like? The sales were down, right? But the prices are not down very much. Yeah, so sales are down 39% on a year-over-year oh. basis. Um, you know, it's the slowest April we've had uh, in, in our history. Um, and then obviously new listings helped kind of cushion that, falling 58%. But, you know, at the end of the day, some of the metrics that I'm kind of watching for is you know, what's happening to like months of inventory. So like basically what we consider is months of supply. So that went from basically 3.9 uh, to 8.4. So more than doubled. So basically anything over six months of supply for sale is generally considered a, a um, buyer's market. So, you know, long story short is, uh, you know, not a whole lot of activity happened. Um, but, you know, the other day we still have some inventory now that's starting to stagnate and, and people that, uh, you know, want to sell, there's going to be some minor price discounting as we saw a uh, tiny bit of last month. Okay, I know the spring is usually considered a good time for a busy time in the market, but I wonder if uh, a lot of people's plans are on hold right now during this pandemic, both buying and selling. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, you know, people that are kind of transacting right now are generally speaking people that need to do something. Um, you know, people that have to sell for, for various reasons or just people that maybe sold something and have to buy for various reasons. So you're not really seeing like a whole lot of you know, speculative activity uh, where it's like, hey, an investor's got a condo. Why don't I go pick up, a, you know, my third condo? You know, you're not really seeing that. Uh, I think for a lot of people, it's kind of a wait and see approach. What's going on with prices? I mean, you got a number of sales down. How come the prices are not going down too? Yeah, I, I mean, I've written about this quite a bit. Um, as I said, coming into this virus is like real estate prices. And it doesn't work like the stock market. You know, it takes many, many months for prices to be reflected lower. Um, it's just not a it's not a liquid market, particularly when you have volumes crashing to their lowest levels of all time. So, um, you know, in terms of seeing downwards movement in prices and getting a clear direction on that, you're probably not going to see that for at least, you know, three, four or five months. Um, it's just the way that real estate markets function. 
Okay, the prices are kind of sticky, falling downward, I guess. Yeah, like I said, you're seeing minor price discounting. Like, you know, something that maybe would have sold multiple offers pre-virus. Now you're sort of seeing it, you know, sell slightly below the the asking price with one offer. And there's a little bit of negotiating and haggling back and forth. You're seeing a little bit of that. But, like, to expect that to be seen in, like, an MLS a smoothed out MLS index uh, is is just not going to happen for some what's, time. What's the mood? What's the, sort of the mood in this industry among the people that you talk to on a daily basis who are involved in the, in this sector and they make their living off of this? I mean, are people worried about the situation or do they look at it as just kind of a pause in the market and, and things will go back to normal, we all hope, in the days ahead? Or are people worried about a potential bubble or a crash? Yeah, well, I mean, I would say, like, you know, the reality is, is the real estate segment is probably one of the most optimistic uh, group of individuals I've, I've ever known. So, uh, you know, the, the sort of consensus, I guess, is is that this, this will pass in a couple months and, mm-hmm. you know, there's quote-unquote pent-up demand and that will, you know, spur open the floodgates once again back to our sort of pre-crisis highs. Uh, I, I'm not really viewing it in the same way. I think that, you know, nobody's really discussing the possibility uh, of potentially a pent-up supply. Uh, you know, we know that uh, certainly there's a lot of, it's an investor-driven market. Uh, you know, some of those investors are going to say, well, you know, maybe the outlook doesn't look so great. Should I sell? Or do you have a bunch of Airbnb investors or maybe, un, you know, tenants that are unemployed and not paying their rent? So, you know, I, I don't know what we're going to see, but I, I, my, my belief is that, you know, I think supply will outpace demand in the near term. Speaking to Steve Soretsky, VanCityCondoGuide.com, how do you go about selling or buying a house during the pandemic? I mean, you can't really show a home, right? Like, are, are real estate agents doing a lot of stuff online? Like, can you show a house using Skype or some other kind of online tool? Yeah, well, I mean, we are deemed an essential service. Uh, so, I mean, you can de- okay. you know debate the merits of that, but... So there are still, uh, you know, private showings that are happening, uh, obviously very cautiously, people coming in with masks and gloves and being asked not to touch anything. Um, so that's kind of the protocol right now. Obviously, open houses are, are not allowed. So we're seeing some sort of virtual open houses kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, for the most part, you know, serious buyers that are out there that actually want to get through, you know, they're doing set up private showings on a one-on-one basis. Okay, in terms of the uh, the market out there, has has the offshore money, the Chinese money, kind of completely dried up, or is there still any kind of demand for real estate from outside of the country? Uh, well, I mean that money. I mean, I wouldn't say completely dried up, but it's been you know a f- tiny fraction of what it was from you know it started kind of going away a couple of years ago. So yeah. um, that isn't hasn't really been a driver of the market here for a couple of years. Uh, obviously, you know, 2015, 2016, you know, there was a, a large inflow and, and uh, you know, that sort of got the party started. But yeah, I mean, for the past couple of years, it's been, been quite slow. And we've seen that reflected in the luxury market, particularly, and a lot in the sort of higher end presale uh, condo market as well. So uh, and right now, I don't think that's changed. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, with this huge shock as people are trying to repair their balance sheets or saving money, they're not necessarily looking to know load up on a couple million dollar investment overseas you know particularly when they can't travel so uh, i'm not really seeing any of that right now okay you mentioned the this concept of pent-up demand if maybe people are sitting on the sidelines and and once we we get through this that maybe demand for home starts to go up again but talk to me a little bit about that concept of pent-up supply as well like we're still building stuff right i mean construction is still going on so there's new buildings still being built right 
Yeah, so like obviously, you know, sales eventually are going to pick up. They're not going to be stuck at these levels forever. Uh, when people get more comfortable leaving their homes and, and, you know, employment gets a little bit better, you know, people will be maybe a little bit more inclined to go out and purchase. But at the same time, you know, there's been a lot of sellers that are holding off right now. We've seen, like I said, new listings down 58% year over year. So we know that some sellers that want to hit the market are waiting for, you know, a little bit of a better time, waiting for some of the health concerns to abate. Um, so we have that. We also have, again, you know, 44,000 homes under construction in Greater Vancouver. That's an all-time high. Um, and so there's a lot of people that, you know, have pre-sale obligations that have to close in the next 12 to 24 months. Um, some of them won't, unfortunately, be able to close with their employment status changing or appraisal values may be coming in a little bit lower. So uh, we know that people are going to want to exit those pre-sale contracts. And, uh, you know, you know, they're going to have to try to find a bid for that. So that's just, you know, supply that's going to come on the market at a time where we don't really know what the demand situation will look like uh, again over the next, you know, six to 12 months. So, it's, you know, you could say. And uh, there are ways that we can do it safely. So um, I think it's a, an interesting idea. And I think there are ways that we could look at having games being played, perhaps in, in BC. Um, hockey would be one that we, we could certainly um, look at. There would be parameters that we've talked about. Wow. Okay. That, you know, when I've heard that yesterday, that was I was kind of surprised when I heard it. That's Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday. She was asked about the potential for the National Hockey League to get up and running again. And she's so cautious on a lot of the things that she says, but this time it was like she was into it. She was she said she's a hockey fan and maybe this is something that could be done if teams could get back on the ice. No fans in the stands, okay? So the arenas would be empty. But the television cameras and the TV crews would be there. So the idea is you start playing NHL hockey again and you broadcast the games on television. I mean, t- what about the ratings for that? I mean, people are just salivating, I think, to see any kind of live sports on TV, especially if you're a sports fan. I mean, you're going into withdrawal symptoms here. Man, imagine if they, they started playing again and were able to watch. Now, think about this. Could Vancouver be a hub city as it's being called a neutral ice you'd have teams fly in and maybe play each other uh, in vancouver for nhl games that are broadcast uh, on tv now this is not going to happen anytime anytime soon but it's being talked about the nhl has got a return to play committee as it's called it's between the league and the players union uh, they meet frequently. Right now, they're in a phase, what they call a phase one of returning to play, which is basically, well, not much happening at all in phase one. In phase two, you could see players returning to their home ice and maybe starting to work out again. But the idea of playing, actually lacing them up and hitting the ice again, that's something that's being discussed. Now, the league is saying if you take a look at teams around the NHL where they've managed to have flattened the curve of COVID-19 infections. Take a look at the infections rate. Vancouver might be there at the top of the list, and especially if you have public health officials that are saying maybe we're willing to take a look at this. 
Could this actually happen? Could you see hockey on TV again? Let's check in with Norm O'Reilly now. He's the director of the International Institute for Sports Business at the University of Guelph. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Norm. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me again. Th- thanks for doing this. I find this fascinating, and it's got a lot of people talking today, especially after our chief public health official yesterday seemed kind of open to the idea. What are your thoughts about this, the the potential for the NHL to start up again? Well, I mean, across pro sports, all the leagues, including the NHL, are very keen, and they, they know, and the research all supports that if someone can get back, as you just pointed out, Mike, there's a huge opportunity to capture some viewers, maybe yeah. some new fans, there's this captive audience, and they're looking at everything they possibly can to try to uh, make something happen, such as playing in front of uh, no fans, like you're pointing out in B.C., yeah, because, you know, we've, we've had a, an interesting chat last week about whether the Canadian Football League faces a an existential mm-hmm. threat here because of this virus. And the CFL, they rely so much on their live gate, people actually buying tickets and going through the turnstiles to watch the game live. And, man, if you cut off that source of funding, that's pretty tough for the CFL. But when you take a look at other major team sports leagues in north america whether it's the nhl major league baseball the nfl of course they all have massive tv contracts right so i mean if they were to start playing games on tv again obviously that would be a big revenue boost for the league wouldn't it why not a boost but it would capture a a large proportion of the revenues that they regularly have to your point the smaller leagues and stuff are, are under huge threat but the bigger leagues in the nfl we know they're well over 90% of their total revenues. And we've already seen reports of the teams even publicly coming out and saying they're planning to play in front of only allowing one person in every 10 seats in their venue. And they're going to walk wow. away from a lot of money, but they're still going to capture 90 plus percent of the revenue. The NHL is not that extreme, but still the majority of the revenues are coming from non tickets and versus getting zero revenues. It's awfully appealing. Okay, my my son is a, a fan of uh, UFC mixed martial arts, and and he's mm-hmm. excited with a, a UFC pay per view card that I believe is scheduled for this weekend from Florida, where they have a very uh, they have a friendly governor down there and a, and a state yep. a state government that's saying okay we're going to make professional sports a, an essential service here, and we're going to allow you to do a, a UFC pay per view card this Saturday night. That's a that's a different kind of thing though isn't it when you mean you're talking about a very small number of athletes involved a small number of officials and tv crew to kind of control that and control the spread of the virus when you're talking about a larger team sport like whether it's hockey or nba or football i mean is this even possible for large team sports to get back uh, back up and running again well it's interesting no question it is if you're the big four leagues anyways where you've got these media revenues one of the real upsides, which you've seen from UFC and boxing over the years, the small venue, it gives you, and this isn't me talking, this is people that make movies and producers, it gives you a much better opportunity to do a really incredible um, filmed, produced uh, a show for television and streaming because cameras can be closer. You have to worry about sight lines from fans and all these kind of things. You can really create an amazing product. You think about esports, does their streaming. I mean, there's very few fans that get in the way. And so UFC and boxing have done that for many years. The 99.999% of the revenues come from the pay-per-view audience. So you get right. this kind of dynamic. So I think we can learn a lot from those sports. And hey, if we can't have people there, well, here's an opportunity to maybe elevate 
the viewing experience. You can imagine two players on a two-on-one and the camera's right there beside them. We've seen that in the Olympics in the, in the, you know, the four by 100, the camera's running right beside the athletes and you're allowed to almost see their face as they're sprinting. Imagine that kind of dynamic in hockey. And it's awfully exciting. Speaking to Norm O'Reilly from the University of Guelph, he is uh, with the International Institute for Sports Business there. When you talk about the, the, the potential for fans to start returning to these games, I mean, this is this pandemic has changed the mindset of a lot of people. I mean, mm. the thought of being in a crowd now just almost seems like a like a foreign concept now. And I, I wonder if when we do get back to some sort of normalcy, do you think that fans will be maybe even afraid to, to go back to a game again and, and sit beside a total stranger in a big crowded arena again? You've, it's a great question, and you, your term mindset there is perfect, and we've done a lot of research on this. And the, there's really different groups of Canadians when you dig into it, and there are those that are desperate for a return and aren't too worried about their health or the health of others, and they're likely to maybe come back and be willing to wear a mask or to kind of go through a different, you know, different way of getting into venues or sitting far apart from each other. But to your point, the majority fall in the other two camps. One is they're worried about their own health as their priority. And then the largest group of Canadians are worried about the health of, of others. And like, we right. don't want other people to go. And this is one of the challenges of coming back is even if you don't directly get the virus or die from the virus, what if somebody does? from indirectly putting that on. What are the public perceptions? What about the health for that person, their family? What about the legal implications of a lawsuit? So you get into all of these kind of particular. So those mindsets are really out there and there's fear. That's why a lot of people are in the camp that unless there's a treatment or a vaccine for this, we're not going to see anything closely looking like normalcy. Then there's other people that say, hey, if we can do this correctly and we can structure it in such a way like the NFL clubs are talking about, that you're going in with people you're isolating with already. You're not sitting yeah. near everybody. Everybody's wearing a mask. You've seen it all. So there's these variety of scenarios in between, but you're bang on that fear of health and fear of the virus are top of mind for most people. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms. <laughs> 